Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This interview is brought to you by Cambridge University Press. Please visit Cambridge at www.cambridge.org. There you can find their entire catalog of books. And, of course, you can buy them there as well. So please visit the press today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we scour the internet looking for interesting books. And this week I'm very pleased to say that we have Judge Morris Hoffman on the show, and we'll be talking about his terrific book, The Punisher's Brain, The Evolution of Judge and Jury. As I said in the pre-interview to Judge Hoffman, I have studied a little bit of this stuff myself in another connection, so I found the application of this kind of evolutionary theory to uh, the judicial context fascinating, and I think that you will too. So let me, uh, first of all, Judge Hoffman, welcome you to the show. Thank you. Absolutely. Could you kick us off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I'm a trial judge, a state trial judge in Denver, and I've, uh, I've had that day job for 23 years now. And in my spare time, I've been sort of dabbling in the academy. Um, uh, I'm, I'm interested in um, in evolutionary biology, and evolutionary psychology, and in the especially in the intersection of uh, of law and um, uh, um, evolution, and in particular uh, law and neuroscience. I'm I've been lucky enough to be a part of the uh, MacArthur Foundation's uh, law and neuroscience efforts that started, uh, I think, about uh, nine or ten years ago was the first iteration. And uh, I am a member of the current iteration, which is called the Research Network on Law and Neuroscience. Mm-hmm. That sounds very interesting. I've no- I didn't know that MacArthur was funding a project like that, but I'm glad to give it a little airtime. Um let me ask you this. Why did you write this book? As you say, you have a day job, and I imagine it's a it's a pretty, I want to say all-consuming one, but it's a, it takes a lot of time. Why did you decide to write this book? It's, um, it's really a culmination of, of, uh, of the work and the thinking and the writing and the teaching that I've been doing at this intersection of law and neuroscience for the last, oh, about 15 years. I sort of stumbled into this. I was, uh, we were on vacation. I was minding my own business. I was at a, uh, at a pool in Tucson and I was happened to be reading, um, Steve Pinker's book, uh, How the Mind Works. And when I got done with it, I, I said to myself, holy moly, this has implications for the law. And so I, I did two things. I, I emailed Steven Pinker, who, whom I didn't know and, and, with whom I've never spoken, and I and I said in my email, "Holy moly, this has something to do with the law." <laughs> and he uh, uh, cordially uh, emailed me back, and it was a very nice and tactful letter. But the but the gist of it was, "You're not the first person to think of this connection, Einstein." And he um, <clears throat> gave me um, 
the names of a couple of groups that are devoted to the study of the intersection of, of law and, at that time, law and more generally biology. I did the same thing to, um, wrote the same kind of email to a friend of mine who was on the law faculty at the University of Chicago, Al Alshuler. And I said, Al, holy moly, have you read this book? It has a lot to do with, with law. And he wrote back a very similar <laughs> email. You're not the first one to think about this. And, and not only that, here's the most amazing coincidence. Al said, I'm in one of these groups, and, I can, and I'll see if I can get you invited. And the group that Al was in um, is called the Gruder Institute for Law and Behavioral Research. And they have um, annual invitation-only conferences at Squaw Valley, and he said, I'll, I'll see if I can get you invited. Mm-hmm. And um, strangely enough, he was able to do that, and that was, I think, about 1998 or 99, and I've been going to them ever since. So that was the start of all of it, and the book really is, um, and, and beginning with Gruder, uh, lots of my outside academic writing has been devoted to this intersection of law and biology, and then later in the, in the last several years, focusing more on, on law and neuroscience. And the book really is sort of a summary of the, of the thinking I've been doing in this area, focused on the hardest part of what I do in my day job, which is sentencing people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you were brought to this by curiosity, which is also an evolved trait. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And luck, I, which probably isn't. Yeah, luck too. Yeah, that's true. I think I want to say this because this is something I think a lot of people don't know who listen to this. You know, if you read a book by somebody like uh, Judge Hoffman or Steve Pinker and you write them an email, they will probably respond. That's the truth. I know this from personal experience. So, I, I learned later that Pinker had has some a bit of a reputation for being um, quite. Um, willing to respond to unsolicited uh, emails would sort of cheapen the experience a little. Well, a little bit. Oh, he's just writing back because it was me. (laughs) But apparently he does this to everyone. And yes, you're you're right. I I will, unless somebody has a case pending in front of me, I I pretty much respond to all emails. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's good for all the people who read these really kind of smart books to know that the people who write them are very eager to talk to you probably. So in any event, that's just a little aside. So the the book involves uh, what is – I'm going to call it a problem, the problem of cooperation. And in most of the animal kingdom, there's not a lot of cooperation. And among humans, there's a huge amount of it, an extraordinary amount of it and a kind that we really don't see anywhere else in the animal kingdom or almost not anywhere else. And that is cooperation, a lot of cooperation with genetic strangers. And a lot of what you're talking about is cooperation with genetic strangers, particularly the – you call it the sort of third-party – uh, judicial systems, or I don't know what to call it. That is where there's a, a judge or a jury involved in the adjudication of a case. That's a very intense kind of cooperation that involves genetic strangers. So it's it's interesting how you got from the initial problem of cooperation to that. And maybe we, we could, by, by way of background, just talk a little bit about what evolutionary um, biologists and psychologists have, have told us about the evolution of cooperation among humans. Sure. Um, First, I think I, um, based on what I um, know, dabbling as an amateur in, in this area of evolutionary biology, I think the, I think it's becoming um, more clear than ever that cooperation is in fact more widespread than thought before in the animal kingdom. I mean, it used to be, you know, this was one of the human, one of thought to be one of the things that were unique about humans, and certainly our the extent of our cooperation is fairly unique, uh, at least among animals that are not related genetically to one another, that is the non-social mm-hmm. insects. But cooperation is starting to be seen in all kinds of ways, in all kinds of animals, at all kinds of levels of, 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 comp- of complexity. Uh, so I think it's um, much more generalized phenomena than probably was was thought to be the case uh, a few years ago. Mm-hmm. But focusing on human evolution, we 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 uh, are thought to have evolved um, in in relatively small groups, maybe of around a hundred or less, mostly related, 
individuals, and this created um, what I think is our essential challenge, which is that to get the benefits of group living, and there were lots of benefits that were uh, fantastically important to us, uh, group hunting, for example, mutual defense, um, some economies of scale later when we, when we were de- doing things like al- agriculture, but even before then, the, some small economies of scale. None of those things could happen without some degree of cooperation. Even living in groups means there has to mm-hmm. be some degree of, 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 of cooperation. Um, and so th- the way I think about this is that we had a, a substantial interest, a long-term interest in cooperating with each other. Unfortunately, we had w- what was often a shorter-term interest in cheating. And it's the tension between cooperation and cheating, which has um, gotten lots of attention um, by evolutionary theorists, and, and depending on your discipline, it's called different things. I call it the social problem in the book, but you know, economists call it the commitment problem, and biologists call it um, different things, including the reciprocity problem mm-hmm. or the altruism problem, or all, right. all of those things. And it's really the same problem, which is how do we act in groups? where cooperating gives us a long-term advantage. And I mean an individual long-term advantage because we evolved really based on individual uh, benefits. Mm -hmm. So living in groups gives us individual benefits. But cheating at the right time also clearly gives us individual benefits. And there's a profound tension between those two things. And how we work that tension out really, I think... um, is a big part of the human story. And one of the ways we worked that tension out was to evolve of various levels of, of punishing behaviors. So um, the one way I think about it is the, if you want to think of the instinct to cooperate, um, you might call those moral intuitions. So the, um, the, the intuition to, um, um, to act pro-socially, to, um, I break it down in the book into two rules that have particular legal significance. Don't steal and don't break your promises. So if we think of those as two of the dimensions of cooperation, uh, we evolved really powerful moral intuitions that tell us not not to steal and not to break promises. It, it doesn't mean those behavioral dispositions always work because we also have this deep um, temptation to break those rules. Um, and so uh, the question is, how do those more, how did the, how did evolution solve this problem of, of the social problem of humans? And one of the ways it solved it was to invest our brains with with um, instincts to, to punish these um, these moral violations or these antisocial uh, behaviors. Mm-hmm. So these instincts restrain restrain the, restrain the individual, and, and then. Uh, but I think before you get there, and I'm not sure about this, you you have to actually restrain the individuals who are actually cheating, and you have to punish them. And the kind of paradox there, as I understand it, is that the punishment itself is costly. Yes, I mean the punishment also violates one of our moral imperatives. I mean the the so rule one is the two rules that I talk about in the book. The two moral imperatives are don't steal and don't breach. But if we think of don't steal as sort of being more generalized and not stealing the stuff of each other, which was really important um, when we emerged, but also not stealing the health. Or, or well-being directly of one another. That pretty much covers all of the criminal law. Um, don't breach, don't break your promises, uh, covers pretty much all of contract. And, and that first rule I should have mentioned also covers most of torts, which is the law of negligence. Mm-hmm. So when I go through a stop sign and crash into you, um, I've, I've violated 
a deep evolved moral intuition that that we don't we just don't act in ways that injure each other mm-hmm. uh, like that. But again, sometimes we're tempted um, tempted to do that. And so the the the, the punishment that evolved along, I think, all simultaneously with these moral intuitions came at three different levels. It's not just punishing each other, but um, the first level, or what I call first-party punishment, is we punish ourselves yeah. by having these moral intuitions embedded in us. And so that that's really conscience and guilt. So unless we're there's something wrong with our brains, um, such as we're psychopaths, we all have these moral intuitions, and, and this is cross-cultural. I mean, it doesn't matter what society we live in. It doesn't matter where. It doesn't matter when. There's lots of cultural nuances at the edge of this, but the core of these moral intuitions is that we all know as humans that it's wrong to break promises, and it's wrong to take stuff from each other. Um, and so one of the ways evolution allowed us to live in groups without cheating too much, without, without breaking too many promises and, and without taking too much stuff from each other is, is to embed that intuition in our brains. And so we are restrained at the outset from doing these things. Um, we're not restrained enough. Otherwise I would be out of business. (laughs) Um, but, but we're restrained. Um, but it wasn't enough. And so there are these two other levels of punishment that I discuss in the book, second party punishment uh, or retaliation. So, so one of the reasons I don't, I don't punch you if you, if you ask a, a tough question. Well, one of the reasons is we're doing this by phone, but if we were in person, one of the reasons I don't punch you when I, when I don't like something you've done isn't just because I know that it's wrong, that it's stealing your well-being in violation of that moral intuition. But the other reason is that I'm pretty much sure that if I punch you, you'll punch me back. Mm -hmm. And so um, the fear of retaliation or second party punishment also helped us abide by these uh, moral intuitions. And that also wasn't enough. Um, And so the third level of punishment and the one that the book is devoted mostly to is third-party punishment. So this is this is what happens when I see somebody committing a wrong against you. I have embedded in my brain uh, across culture, across societies, across all demographics. Um, if I see somebody doing a wrong to a third party, blame wells up uh, in me, and um, it's not as strong as it as if I'm the one that's getting punched. Um, but it's still there, and that's what animates, I think, at, at the heart. It's, what, it's the heart of what animates our, uh, our, um, our punishment systems that have become institutionalized. Mm-hmm. And it's that third-party punishment which is evolutionarily the most interesting because that person doesn't really, at least on the simple analysis, have any skin in the game. In other yes. words, they're incurring a cost for what would seem to be no benefit. You're exactly right, and and in the early years of of um, the discussions about this, evolutionary theorists um, um, had this sort of instinct—I guess is the way to put it—this <laughs> hunch that um, third-party punishment was really important for human evolution, but they couldn't figure out how in the world it could have evolved. Yeah. I mean, be- because of what you just said, which is that to punish somebody who has done you no wrong. Um, comes at a steep, immediate cost, but the payoffs are all these distended things way down the the road, indirect payoffs and, you know, group stability and all of, all of those things. And so, and this is really a, um, particular form of the problem of altruism. Yes, it is. Why, why do individuals in lots of different species exhibit behaviors that seems so damaging to them in the short run. And I think the answer in the punishment context is the same as the answer in all these contexts, which is uh, because our groups had enough people that were related, um, these costs ended up, although it looks like they're too costly to, um, 
uh, to be justified, they in fact were justified. Yeah. You know, because so it, they, they benefited all of our relatives that lived in the in the same group. So it was a function of kin selection, what biologists call kin selection. Right. Kin, yeah. Right. Kin selection, and and the other aspect of it is that our puni- our punishment instincts are also restrained for all the reasons you talked about, which is that they're so costly. So we can't have we can't have evolved in a group that had a an instinct to punish every single violation, for example. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, um, that's true. So we evolved along with this third-party punishment instinct, different strategies to um, sort of limit its cost. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I'm reminded of something that Robert Trivers, who was one of the founders of, of this field, um, I guess I would call it evolutionary psychology, in a famous paper, uh, I think it was on reciprocal altruism, I, don't, I think that was entitled, he said the the goal of the evolutionary study of altruism is to take all of the altruism out of altruism, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which makes sense if you think about it. Yeah, it looks altruistic, but you have to find a way in which it's not really altruistic in order to explain right. it, because it couldn't be explained if it were pure altruism. Um, yes, it's really it's, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't that a fabulous paper? Oh my yeah, god! Oh yeah, that was a. And it's like was, two pages long. I yeah, mean, no, that was be a the paper best that, science, yeah. best science paper per word. Yeah, no, it, uh, it, it, it. I don't remember the title of it, but it bears reading. It, it is quite something. He's a very interesting guy, Trevor. I don't know if you've studied him at all or know about him, but he's a, he's a, he's a. He's a let's say he's a complicated person. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think we should leave it at that. Yeah, he did, he'd come to a couple of the early um, Gruder conferences, and yeah. so I, I met him at those. Yeah, complica- I haven't seen him in a while. Complicated guy. Had a good idea. Um, so let's talk a little bit about um, – the most of the book is about uh, third-party punishment. I guess I, guess I want to say one more thing before we go on to that. And, and, and just while you were talking, this occurred to me that the first-party punishment, that is uh, sort of the guilt and shame that you might feel uh, about – having done something wrong and it as this kind of break on bad behavior, it like its costs seem to be incalculable. Whereas the other two seem calculable from the individual's perspective. Mm-hmm. You see, and that's just, I just find that extraordinarily interesting because I think people, when, when they consider doing something wrong, they don't consider the sort of first party costs. You see what I well, mean? I think, yeah, I think you're exactly right. And in fact, one of the, I mean, by calling these moral intuitions is, is almost a way of saying this is not about cost and benefit. Um, the the relentless cost and benefit machine of evolution may be the thing that produced these intuitions, but the intuitions themselves are not about cost and benefit. If you decide not to rob the bank because you think the chances you'll get caught are too high, you are acting not in response to that intuition. Mm-hmm. I mean, the intuition is, sorry, we just don't rob don't banks. banks. Yeah. Um, right. That's why it's so powerful and has was able on its own without second-party punishment, without any institutional third-party punishment to help glue our groups together. But, uh-huh. but we're so smart and we're so devious and we're so strategic yeah. that it, that that wasn't enough. Right. But I mean, I think I would say, and I, I'm, just going to throw this out, that 99.9% of all of the restraint that makes society possible happens in the first party restrictions. You see what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah. I, and I have to catch myself because the world that I live in doesn't feel like that. Yeah, true. I bet. But you're right. I mean, people don't rob banks because they know it's wrong. Yeah, right. Yeah. They don't rob banks. Yeah, um, yeah. But you but, never, you know, to be fair, some people don't feel the same pressures that uh, other people uh, feel. No, that's way. true. And you, you talk about sociopaths, psychopaths, sociopaths yeah, in the book. Psychopaths is the yeah. current. Could you talk a little bit about them? Sure. Um, so while we're still on the topic of first party punishment, yeah. conscience and guilt, they seem to be people, and of course there's a continuum like there is with all um, uh, mental conditions. Mm-hmm. Really, I think with all behavioral traits, there's a continuum. But psychopaths are at the far end of that continuum. And, and to really put it most bluntly and, and to oversimplify it, they don't have these moral intuitions, especially these two that we're talking about. Um, 
Um, don't steal and don't break your promises. Um, they're just not there. And uh, one of the ways uh, I've described this in, a, in an article I wrote with them, um, with a really a preeminent uh, psychopathy researcher, Kent Keel, is that when a psych psychopath um, sees somebody drop their wallet on the street, um, they think of that wallet the same way you or I would think of a, a $5 bill we just see blowing around on the street that doesn't belong to anybody. Hmm. They have no social they don't see any social connections to that piece of property. And so the idea that it might be wrong to take that person's wallet when they drop it, or even to take that person's wallet by gunpoint, to them that feels exactly the same as picking up a $5 bill that yeah. you see blowing around on the sidewalk because they just have no, yeah. they have no empathy. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned that as an example because just – I guess it was two days ago, my son, who's six, found somebody's wallet and knew to take it to me. And then I took it and I took it to the police station. Right. <laughs> I didn't even open it up. <laughs> I don't know what was in it, but I just like, right. this and ain't mine. Point, this is not that's mine. That's what 99% <laughs> of males do. And 1% of us are psychopaths. Right. And these they people don't you have those. And so why the reason psychopathy is important to study is it shows what humans would be like without this first level of restraint. Um, and it's not a pretty picture. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned, we also have a kind of another experiment. We, we house a lot of these people uh, together in close confines in prisons. Yes. Right. And where they, you know, are forced to interact with one another and it's not pretty there either. Right. In fact, um, somewhere between 20 and 25% of all incarcerated males, all the data, by the way, I don't mean to be sexist about this, but all the data is, is about males because male psychopathy, it, female psychopathy is very, 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 very rare. Mm -hmm. Although there's some, movement now to sort of for equal rights in female uh, psychopathy and sort of looking at female psychopaths and thinking about maybe we, we have the wrong definition of female psychopaths. But anyway, focusing just on males, 25, 20 to 25% of the uh, pr prison populations in the West um, uh, uh, are psychopaths. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, and in the general population, the rate of psychopathy is 1%. So, so that means you're 25 times more likely to be um, in prison if you're a psychopath yeah. than not a psychopath, which is extraordinary. I mean, it's the biggest predictor of being in prison than anything. It's bigger than race, than poverty, than early childhood head trauma. But it's, it's the biggest uh, predictor. Mm-hmm. Is there? I'm, I'm sorry, this is a little bit of a departure from the book, but is there any way to diagnose psych, uh, psych – how did you say it again? Psychopathy. <laughs> Psychopathy. Is there any way to diagnose this before uh, actual um, exhibition of the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the symptom itself? So I'm not an expert in this, but, it, but I do know that it's really controversial because there's a forensic aspect of it. Um, there is an instrument – called the Hair Checklist. Uh, it's named after a, a, a fellow, uh, Robert Hare, who um, invented it. And it's, it's like many uh, psychological instruments. It's a questionnaire. Mm -hmm. but, part of the question, but part of the instrument is also um, examining somebody's criminal history. That's what makes it yeah. really controversial with yeah. psychiatrists. So the Hare instrument is pretty widely accepted in the by people who study, as I understand it, people who study psychopathy. Psychopathy, though, is, has not made it to the DSM uh, 4 or 5. Um, it is still controversial. And your question was, is there a way to... So there is this clinical instrument that is used to diagnose it. There's some really interesting um, emerging neuroscience um, data about psychopathy that I talk about in the book as well, there seem to be some significant deficits in particular areas that are at the point where it's almost diagnostic. I don't think they're there quite, mm -hmm. but almost diagnostic of, of psychopathy. But your question is, there a way to diagnose this early on? And there is a version of Hare's checklist for juveniles 
but it's even more controversial. Mm-hmm. Um, the worry, and I think it's it's a legitimate one, is that you know, until quite recently, but calling somebody a psychopath was just a way of saying they're incorrigible. Yeah. And when we start labeling juveniles as incorrigible, um, you know, the label itself will start having a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. So I get why people are very nervous about this. But, you know, adult psychopaths come from somewhere. They weren't deposited here from another planet. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think there's any doubt that there are that that uh, there's a genetic component to this, that there's a, a deep developmental component to it, where it comes from exactly, I don't think it's known, but it certainly certainly um, is there early on. The, the good news is that there's a fellow, uh, Michael Caldwell, in at the University of Wisconsin, who's been doing some therapy, um, really intense therapy with juvenile psychopaths that's starting to look like it's um, doing good because until that worked, there was nothing that was done um, to help psych- adult psychopaths. And in fact, there was a famous paper that uh, where uh, psychopaths were given uh, group therapy in prison before they were released, and that made them worse. Hmm. Um, and when they were interviewed after this experiment, they said, "Oh yeah, it sort of let me get an insight on how normal people." behave. I had no idea that I could, for example, threaten somebody's sister and get them to do something by threatening to kill their sister because mm-hmm. you couldn't get me to do anything by threatening my sister. It mm-hmm. sort of was a finishing school for to give them sort of a, a, a learned ability to appreciate the social connections that they don't feel. Um, but Caldwell's uh, work is really, really uh, promising and and, um, you know, maybe there's something we can do to these. I think they're called now juveniles with psychopathic tendencies. Even psychopathy researchers don't call them juvenile psychopaths for fear of this labeling. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. So let's move on just a little bit. We've talked about the instinct to punish, that is to find blame and then punish. Uh, and then there is a correspondent, um, I guess I would call it emotion or trait, and that is the tendency or desire to forgive. Could you talk a little bit about the evolution of it? Yes. Um, For the reasons you've already said, which is that punishment was really costly with, with really indirect benefits, right? I mean, the, the, the person you were punishing might retaliate. His family might retaliate. The, he and his family might leave the group, which could be devastating. And so it was really important for, for this instinct to punish, especially in the third-party context, to come with some built-in restraints. Um, and um, th- there are several of them. First of all, um, evolution did this really cool thing, which is to give us different circuit, what's starting to look like different circuits that don't communicate much with each other for blame versus punishment. So we're much quicker to blame than we are to punish. Um, and I think that's part of the overall strategy to, to restrain our punishment. The circuits that are involved in, in punishment tend to be more um, cortical, more part of the part of the frontal cortex, the sort of more uh, measured, sort of cooler acting circuits. The blame circuits are deeper, older, um, uh, are, are, are more about sort of hotly reacting to a situation. And by separating those two circuits, um, uh, we're able to sort of take a second look at things before we move from blame to blame to punishment. And and one of the dimensions in which we do that is we just don't punish small wrongs because uh, we have the time because these circuits are different to uh, to reflect on whether we should. So uh, I mentioned that the first two rules, I, I, the rule one is don't steal, rule two is don't um, don't breach. And I, rule three is the rule that says punish serious violations of rules one and two. So if they're not serious, um, these violations just don't 
get our evolved punishment attention. So that's one way we restrain punishment. Another way is we don't punish, generally don't punish unintentional harms. So we don't punish the person who's during an epileptic fit uh, punches us because that's, you know, we know that he didn't intentionally uh, punish us. And this is really, really important to, to law because um, intentionality is one of the keys to, uh, um, to criminality. Um, and the evolutionary explanation for that is, you know, it would be a bad idea if we went around punishing accidents. Um, and a sort of riff on that is we also don't punish people who are not sufficiently rational. Um, and so this gets into the whole area of, in, of insanity. Um, but so that's another way that punishments are strained. But a third way to finally get to your question is even when it's a big harm. And uh, so even when our blame circuits um, manage to get their messages to our punishment circuits, and even when we're sure that it was that the wrongdoer is rational enough to sort of know what he was doing and to form an intention to hurt a third party, even then sometimes we forgive. And, um, and, and the reason, the evolutionary reason we do that is, is that if we can have some kinds of assurances that this person um, who did the wrong can still be a productive member of our group, it might not be a good idea to punish them. So punishment comes in, so forgiveness comes in all kinds of flavors. It comes in outright forgiveness. It comes in sort of a way of restraining the amount of punishment, but it's really all of one piece. And the idea is, what do I know about this person that gives me some confidence that, um, you know, just a glare will be enough uh, to get him to get him back into the social fold versus, you know, a whipping. Um, and these things, too, I think, are embedded in all of us. Um, I think they're really the, the, the flip side of the, of the punishment coin. We, they're almost the same question. I mean, when we ask, ask ourselves, how much are we going to punish this person, person, we are asking the forgiveness question. And certainly when I impose punishment from the bench, it's all bound up in this, this whole issue of what kind of danger is this person to us? Um, what signals might he give to help stimulate my forgiveness um, instincts? Um, apology is one of them. Um, so forgiveness is, is, is deeply embedded in us, in us also. And while, but while I'm on the topic, there's a fourth way we restrain our punishment, which is we have a tendency to delegate it. So, and this has, I think, also to do with the fact that our, these two sets of circuits are not, don't talk much to each other, blame and, and punishment. So we, we blame hotly. You know, if somebody spills a cup of coffee on you at Starbucks, you immediately get quite angry at them. Um, what you do about it is sort of a cooler reflection. And if you see something really terrible that happens to a third party, though, um, what you do, what you, you're, you blame, um, but your punishment circuits are compromised by a desire to have somebody else inflict the punishment. Mm -hmm. and, and that was also really important in our, when we emerged, because, you know, if a hundred people, we were lived in groups of, let's say a hundred and one and every, and we, and we lived in, it, it, we were intensely social. So we were around each other all the time and most wrongs were seen by everybody. If everybody's instinct is to actually punish third party wrongs, we would sort of degenerate into sort of an anarchy of punishment. You know, how much do we punish? Is one person punishing more than another? And so I think this punishment instinct had to have come with a desire that somebody else do it. We blame quickly. We say, yes, that person should be punished. Not by me, by somebody else. And I think those are the seeds of the beginning of the judge and the jury. Mm -hmm. And this also raises a kind of, I guess it's a common public goods 
problem or, or, or what is, what do they call it in social science literature? Um, uh, or cooperative action or communicative action. You know, when you see an injustice, you say, well, somebody else is going to take care of that. Right. And then you just let it go and everybody does that. And the injustice continues, uh, until they came for you, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so I, I want to talk a lot of your book and the most, some of the most interesting parts of your book are about the ways in which the framework which you've set up, this description of um, the evolutionary history of our um, desire for punishment, our ability to forgive, the way in which these are structured, and how it m- relates to kind of contemporary uh, judicial practices, particularly in the United States. And I wondered if we could talk a little bit about that. Um, one thing that occurs to me, I did interview a fellow uh, who um, – he wrote a book that basically said, you know, we should really allow victims to punish their uh, – we should allow victims to punish uh, the perpetrators. And, and it does seem to me that there's something unsatisfying about having a – sometimes about having a third party punish your – the perpetrator of a crime. that Something's been committed against you. Right. It, it seems like there's almost something instinctive in that. Like, you know, you kind of want to – you want to hit them in the face or whatever it is you want to do. Um, I, yeah. So is there any way to take a – I mean, is there any way to reduce this sort of – in other words, to, to take account of that impulse and make yeah. the, the process more satisfying for victims? I think um, – so we're talking, I think, about the two, two different levels of punishment, right, what I'd call second-party punishment. So the, 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 the victim who is the victim of this wrong right. wants to retaliate yes. of that second-party punishment. Mm-hmm. And one of the important, I think, evolutionary connections between third-party punishment and second-party punishment is that one of the reasons – the the victim doesn't retaliate is is because the victim knows that this that all of the group members also have this third party punishment instinct. This is sort of the converse of what what you were saying about yeah. the Al Kitty Genovese uh, problem. Yeah. Um, uh, one of the reasons uh, victims uh, one of the reasons modern life doesn't degenerate into everybody retaliating against everybody else is because they know there's a legal system in which um, other members of our society will will affect third-party punishment. But, but more than just the legal system, that legal system is just a remnant of what back in our groups uh, 100,000 years ago was really an important restraint on 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 retaliation um there's a there's a weird um converse of all of this that i talk about um a little bit in the book which is that um one of the one of the difficulties with this delegation is that is what you touched on which is that when victims um retaliate or are allowed to retaliate, which would make it sort of a cross between second and third party punishment. If the, if the, if the third party punishers say, look, here's how we're going to do third party punishment. We're going to let victims retaliate. That, that becomes sort of a state sanctioned third party punishment in mm-hmm. which the victims get to retaliate. The good thing about that is the victims get this satisfaction. And, and as I say in the book, there's nothing like imposing punishment that sort of wipes out, wipes the slate clean. I mean, you, it's, it's bound up with forgiveness. Um, I talk about a, um, an incident in which my German shepherd grabbed one of my gloves on the way to work. And I was mad at him and I grabbed a tennis ball and I was trying to throw it at him and I couldn't hit him because he was moving too fast and I kept throwing it faster and faster. And finally I threw it as hard as I could and I hit him right in the eye and he, let out this enormous German shepherd whale. And the moment that happened, I, I, you know, I no longer wanted to punish him for taking my glove. And this is what happens with retaliation Mm -hmm. is the good thing about it is that it dampens all the blame fires and, and we're all almost back to baseline. The bad thing about it when it comes to third party punishment is we're not the the group is not as satisfied yeah. about the punishment and especially modern society. I, I mentioned in the book that you know in my courtroom, you know, a victim will come to the podium during sentencing hearing and say what terrible things the defendant did to him or her, 
and it's really emotional. And then I impose the sentence and then the defendant goes behind this hidden door and the victim never sees him again. And there's something really unsatisfying to the victim about that. Uh-huh. You know, wait a sec. I was raped by this guy. Yeah. And all that happens is he goes behind this door and I don't see him again. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's something to be said for these sort of public punishments. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know about victim punishing. Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. But more involvement but by the victim. Making them more public, yeah. um, I think, is probably a good idea. Mm-hmm. So as a second, I guess I would call it, so there's some distance between what is instinctive, I, guess, I think, to a lot of people, and at least to me, and the punishment regime we have is uh, what I think in the law is called lex talionis, and that is an eye for an eye. That, that just has like an intuitive kind of uh, sort of attraction. So if somebody somebody cuts off your arm, you get to cut off their right. arm, or somebody does. But our yeah. legal system does not like this at all. You know, it seems fact, very satisfying. Yeah, go ahead. I'm just going to say, that seems very satisfying to me. It seems just, you know, and e- e- it seems equal, right? So, so could you talk so, a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah, I think um, the evolutionary story about eye for eye is that it really, that my guess is that it's not really part of our evolved natures. Uh, and and the, the reason it feels like it is you're talking about second party punishment. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about Hey, if somebody pokes out my eye, I'm going to poke out their eye. Tell me whether the the feeling you have with that hypothetical is the same as when I say, okay, you see somebody poke out somebody's eye. Do you now have a really powerful instinct to poke out the wrongdoer's eye? I don't think so. No. You have a really powerful instinct that something should be done, but that um, eye for an eye business doesn't translate when you move from second-party punishment to third-party punishment. And in fact, the, the history, uh, as much as is known about the primitive history of punishment, bears that out. I mean, um, although eye for an eye is, you know, goes back before the Roman times, um, in our, from everything that I've read, in our primitive uh, smaller societies, it was not at all um, popular. And one of the ways I explain it in in the book is um, it's because we evolved in family-like structures. I mean, most of us were, in fact, related. And the idea that you would want to cut the hand off of a thief makes makes as mu- made as much sense a hundred thousand years ago as the idea that you would cut the hand of your sister off Mm -hmm. if you caught her stealing from Mm you. We just didn't have those instincts. And in fact, most primitive societies, as hard as it is for us to believe now, punish with a series of fines. I mean, even the worst offenses, homicide. Yeah, that's right. Was punished um, with fines. Now, fines back then, you know, were a bigger deal than than they are maybe today, but still. Yeah, I can. That that is absolutely true. I can tell you, as somebody that's a a medievalist and early model modernist, that uh, almost every, well, first of all, every crime was a tort. (laughs) There weren't really any crimes, and every tort was composable by vergelt or something like it. That is money payment. Yeah. Right. That's exactly right. And so, part part of the. complication is that as our groups got bigger and bigger and we were forced by circumstance and by political unions to think of people who were not in our group as if they were so now we're in a town you know we're no longer in a tribe or a group of a hundred people now we're in a town we're told everybody's a group member but we just don't feel that yeah and so, uh, so one of the so the, one of the results of the tension between in and out groups, of course, is this terrible problem of of ethnic and racial uh, violence, uh, discrimination. Um, um, we for out group members, we have an extraordinarily powerful desire to do eye for an eye, or even or or even worse than that. But for the in group members, not so much, and. And that tension, you know, we had to bear for thousands of years as our groups kept um, incessantly getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And and we were forced to deal with these people that our laws told us were insiders, that our brains told us were not. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I I want to talk a a final and third, uh, I I think, 
issue that is raised by your research and our contemporary uh, judicial system. And this one involves uh, not not you personally, but the the the, the role of the judge. Um, and, and I think you've convincingly uh, um, argued that you know everyone is kind of a, a mass of these. Uh, tendencies or emotions or instincts, and they are kind of mixed up. There's blame and there's punishment and there's shame and there's the desire for retaliation and there's retribution. There's desire for forgiveness. All of these things are sort of at war in our minds. And I just wondered in researching and writing this book, did this book make your job easier or harder? That's a great, that's a great question. Um, you know, I don't, I, I like, I, I don't think, um, the book or the work that I've done that led to it has changed the way that I judge, but I'm not positive about that. You know, we're in many ways, we are the worst um, historians about our own behaviors. So um, the other thing going, going on is that everybody changes over time Mm -hmm. and, you know, doing a job in the 23rd year, you do it differently than you do it in the first year. How much of that is, is attributed to the things that I learned about in in doing this. Like, you know, the real answer is I don't know. But my guess is that it hasn't really changed the way that I judge. But in in fact, the converse. I mean, I think I think I wrote this book because um, sentencing people to prison is really hard. Yeah, I bet. And doing it for as long as I've done it, um, I've just spent a lot of time thinking about. And I've I've just gone through so many sentencing hearings where, you know, I thought I did the right thing and then thought I didn't and then thought I did and went back and forth and and, and self-examined enough that I started to get curious about what the heck is going on when we do this terrible thing that we have to do and, mm-hmm. and why do we have to do it? And is it really just because we're a primitive society and in the wonderful new shiny future, we won't have to do this or is there something else going on? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's one point in the book where you talk about instructing juries and could you talk a little bit about that? Has it informed the way that you instruct juries before they go off to deliberate? Cause you ask them, as you say, you ask them to do something, which is, and now you really fully recognize this uh, profoundly unnatural Oh yeah. So this is um yeah, so so this is more about the um sort of process of the law. Um and um uh, so I talk very a little bit in the book, one chapter I think I devote to uh, what these uh, evolutionary insights might might uh, teach us about the process of the law. And and the the process of the law really are unnatural. You know, we're we're built to to make instantaneous blame decisions certainly not quite so instantaneous punishment decisions, but still by the compared to the law instantaneous um, to the modern law. Uh, And so we, what we ask jurors to do is in modern courtrooms is something that's really unnatural. I mean, during our regular day, we make all kinds of snap judgments about uh, who's right, who's wrong, uh, who should be punished uh, when we're dealing with our children uh, teachers do it with uh, with their students. We do it with coworkers. We're getting information f- simultaneously from all kinds of places, and we make these gestalt judgments all the time. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly in the courtroom, we tell jurors, here's the way it's going to work. You're going to hear first from one side who gets to call all of their witnesses first without hearing anything from any of the witnesses from the other side. And it's just really unnatural. It's unnatural in terms of informational information coming at them. Uh, we ask them not to make any decisions. And it's really hard for jurors because we're, we are in fact snap judgment machines. Mm-hmm. And so I tell my jurors, I have done this for the last, oh, 15 or so years. Um, I have this very conversation with them. I say, look, we're built to make snap judgments and you can't do that here. It's really important that you not you do everything you can to avoid jumping to a conclusion. And when you jump to a conclusion, try to unjump to it. Because uh, one of the problems we all worry about is that one, uh, not only worry about, but experience ourselves when we're the fact finder, when there's, we have a trial without a jur- jury, I talk about it in the book, is there's always a moment during the trial where I think I know what's going on. 
And so I construct this narrative in my mind. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is what happened. Mm -hmm. He's the bad guy. He's the good guy. And the risk of doing that is evidence that comes in after that light bulb moment uh, we pay that conflicts with the narrative that we've constructed. We pay less attention to. There's been lots of empirical studies about that, and that really worries me because of the because of the of the way trials work. That the defense doesn't get to put on any witnesses until after all the prosecution or plaintiffs' witnesses are are put on. And so, I do have this conversation with jurors. How how much good it does, I have no idea. You know, it really has to do with how sticky these, uh, what the psychologists call how sticky these um, instincts to jump to conclusions are. A lot of these instincts that we have um, are really easily um, dealt with um, just by talking about them. Race is one of them that I'm hopeful that um, just by talking about it can 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 help diffuse some of the, the in-group, out-group stuff. Um, and I'm hoping these process problems are like that. You know, um, you know you'll know, you want to jump to conclusions. You'll think you know what happened. Please try to undo that and listen to all of the evidence. Um, I sort of plead with them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whether it works or not, I don't know. And I don't know of any way to <laughs> I, I was just thinking it's sort of good instructions for daily life if you see what I mean um, <laughs> don't jump to so many conclusions when you're talking to someone and listen to them yeah that's true <laughs> although you know there's a continuum you know if you're on the line in the factory you, yeah you some things you have to have to be done fast mm-hmm. but not everything. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you this. Um, you, you suggest some things that might be changed in our judicial system. If you had one thing that you could change in light of the research that, that um, uh, you know, you're king of the world, uh, and uh, I, I would say attorney general, but that, that he doesn't have that much power. <laughs> so, um, so if you're king of the world and you can change one thing about our judicial system in light of your research, what would it be? God, you think I would know the answer to that question right away because I – you know, the the book, I have to tell you, is mostly descriptive and not prescriptive. And in fact, you know, my editor said, hey, you got to have something about, okay, what does all this mean? And I said, no, I really don't want to know. You've got to. You've got to. So, you know, I reluctantly wrote these last three chapters about, all right, so what does all this mean? Yeah. But I'm really not. I'm so unsure of what all of this really means that I did it with, I hope, with some restraint. Mm-hmm. but. So that's the That's a good answer. That's a good answer right there. You know, uh, if okay. you, if you don't know, you don't know. And that's I think know. the felony murder rule is is the worst example of um a law that so deeply conflicts with our and talk about that a little bit. So it's the rule that's mostly gone in most states, but there are a couple states like mine that still have robust forms of it. And it's the rule that says if you are if you commit a felony and in the course of that felony, someone is killed. Someone di- the, the strictest form of the rule is someone dies. You have committed first-degree murder. So the worst uh, example of this would be you rob a bank. And um, there's a gun battle. And you're, you rob a bank with a confederate. And your confederate is killed by one of the guards. In the states that have the most robust form of felony murder, you are guilty of first-degree murder, as if you had planned and and committed the murder of your own compatriot. Um, and there are lots of policy reasons for the felony murder rule, and you know people shouldn't be committing felonies. So. But but I mean you're right. Intuitively, it doesn't make any sense, right? Because and, you're not and, really at fault for that murder. Somebody else shot that person. Right. Yeah. You had no in, it's what I call in the book a no intent dissonance. The, the dissonance. The law is really cares most about intentional wrong. Yeah. And when we punish people for things that they never intended to do, um, there's lots of blowback. There's blowback from jurors who don't want to do it. There's blowback from justices on appellate courts who are forced to Twist the law and yeah. 
and manipulate it so it doesn't have bad results. And mm-hmm. it's just a bad thing. The good news is it's gone, and it's gone most everywhere. Um, uh-huh. But there's still a few states uh-huh. where it, it still is. It's interesting. Well, I want to thank you very much for taking time to talk with us today. We've been talking to Judge Morris Hoffman about his book, The Punisher's Brain, The Evolution of Judge and Jury. I'd like to close the interview by asking our traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now, Judge Hoffman? Oh, I'm um, I'm resting. <laughs> I still have the day job. Um, I have a couple. Uh, uh, I'm still on the MacArthur Network, and we have some experiments going, but I don't have any. Um, I don't have any books in the works. That's refreshing to hear. <laughs> As somebody who interviews people who write books all day long, that you should take a break. That's very good. So again, let me tell. Uh, let me. Well, let me first thank uh, Judge Hoffman for being on the show. Thank you very much. Thank you, Marshall. It was a pleasure. Absolutely. And let me say to everyone who listens to this podcast and all the other podcasts on the New Books Network, thank you very much for tuning in today. We don't tune in anymore, I guess, for downloading. And just to repeat, we've been talking to Judge Morris Hoffman about his terrific book, The Punisher's Brain, The Evolution of Judge and Jury. I encourage you to go out and get it and read it. Uh, And until next week, I hope you all uh, prosper and are well. Bye-bye. 